I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. When a person goes missing, the first 48 hours are vital. Some police departments may ask to wait 24 to 72 hours to file an official report, unless the circumstances of the missing person appear dire or concerning. But in most cases, the local police force immediately begin a search of the surrounding area or issue an Amber Alert if the missing person is a child. In special cases, federal law enforcement gets involved in the investigation. Previously on this show, I spoke with Julie Murray, whose sister Mara has been missing for 19 years. Julie's family has long requested assistance from federal agencies for Mara's case. However, due to complications with the state police, those resources weren't immediately given. So how are the feds brought on to work on cases of missing people? And what special tools do they bring to the table to help investigate these crimes? On today's bonus episode, I'm joined by retired United States Secret Service agent Jeffrey James. After serving for 22 years, Jeff retired at the rank of Assistant Special Agent in Charge. Jeff also served as the Secret Service Liaison to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. He now serves as the President of Capital Security Consulting, as well as the Chief of Police at Robert Morris University. Jeff, thank you so much, my friend, for joining us today. You are my ultimate resource for so many things, law enforcement, and especially and for today, the interplay between federal and state jurisdictions. A lot of people have questions about when and why and how federal intervention can be activated. So why don't we start by talking about the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, to which you were a liaison from the United States Secret Service. Yeah, correct. I was the uh, the Secret Service liaison uh, to NCMEC for about two and a half years. And uh, I will tell you, um, I... I'm not ashamed to say that with everything I did in the Secret Service, standing next to presidents, kings, and princes, uh, and traveling the world, my time at NCMEC was some of the best of my career. Uh, NCMEC is really the model of what every fusion center and what every task force should look like. It is multiple agencies coming together with a goal and a mission that they're passionate about, and nobody caring who gets the credit, and nobody pointing the finger when there's blame. Um, it is really an, an incredible asset to really internationally with the development of the International Center for Missing and Exploited Children that was that was born out of the tragedy of the Walsh family when Adam Walsh was kidnapped and murdered. And tell us about the exact function and purpose of NICMIC, as you call it, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. It, it has a couple functions. One is it's the clearinghouse for all the child pornography that is discovered by law enforcement. It's sent to, uh, it's sent to NCMEC. Um, they catalog it and they catalog it in several ways. And there's some technical parts to this that are hard to explain. But one of the things that they do is um, because pictures get cropped and they get copied, um, but they, they've they figured out electronic ways to say, all right, we've seen this picture before by that, they call it the hash value. So if a picture is is manipulated, if a bad guy takes an old uh, image of child pornography and puts um, puts captions over it or crops it, they're still able to say, okay, this is one we've seen before because this is something as crazy as it sounds. 
in in the circles of of pedophiles there's a lot of times where you'll see child pornography that's 30 years old and it's traded like baseball cards so they're the clearinghouse that takes all that pornography in, catalogs it and they could tell you um where it was first discovered and where it is moved to and um and that helps law enforcement really keep an electronic track of how much this child pornography is moving. Uh, the other thing they do is uh, they are the resource to law enforcement. So one of the things that a lot of people don't understand is nearly half of all the police departments in the United States have fewer than 10 sworn officers. 75% have less than two dozen and 90% have less than 50 police officers. So, you know, we all think, you know, you're there in New York where the NYPD has its own aviation unit, its own uh, forensic scientists. Well, you know, so the large majority of police departments don't have anything close to that. So NICMIC is really a resource for local law enforcement to do their analyst work for them, that when they get a missing or exploited child case, they can funnel it to NICMIC. The analyst at NICMIC will do the analysis, and then they send each of the uh, federal agencies that are housed there their little piece of the, of the uh, investigation to handle, because even though all the, all the uh, federal agencies are housed there, we still each have our own little piece of the pie that we handle. So that's uh, so in both of those ways, they're, they're incredibly uh, valuable to law enforcement and, you know, society in general. So clarify is child mm-hmm. pornography automatically then within the federal jurisdiction or is NCMEC serves as an additive as an augment to local and state police agencies as its clearinghouse function and also within the constellation of federal agencies that are housed there? Oh, correct. It is an augment because NICMIC itself is a nonprofit organization. And it's that's another thing that makes it so unique is it is a, a nonprofit organization with no law enforcement ability of its own that ties in this incredibly powerful federal, state, and local law enforcement mechanism into itself. So which other federal agencies are housed there besides the U.S. Secret Service, and then who else? Oh, it's it's all the alphabets. So, <laughs> so it's the FBI, uh, NCIS, the U.S. Marshals are there. Um, it's uh, And even if uh, an agency doesn't have someone sitting there, uh, they will have a designee. Um, like, so... So say um, someone is arrested for trafficking a child and when they're arrested, they also have drugs and weapons on them. There'll be a designee for that case within the ATF and the DEA that that we can call, even if that that agency doesn't have someone sitting right at NCMEC every day like other agencies do. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. So. Bear with me on my ignorance here, but no, for the Secret no. Service as a liaison to NICMIC, is that because of counterfeiting or is that somehow no. under the protective detail of in the executive branch or, di- or diplomatic well, it's branch? Actually, yeah, what happened was in 1994, when the Omnibus Crime Bill was passed, Congress mandated that the Secret Service would lend all its forensic capabilities to any law enforcement agency in the country that was investigating a missing or exploited child case. So that's the Secret Service's nexus. Um, because like I said, 90% of these law enforcement agencies aren't going to have a lab. So what they can do is they can get their evidence to us. If they have a a ransom letter, they can get it to the secret service because we're the handwriting experts. 
if they have fingerprint analysis and maybe they want to send it to their state lab, but the state lab's telling them it's a six, six week wait time, they can get it to us and we'll get it done very quickly. And uh, we also do, uh, the Secret Service would also do enhancement of video, enhancement of audio and, um, and still pictures. So we were really the, the lab for, for any law enforcement agency that needed it. And we did pretty much everything except DNA and ballistics, but any other part of forensics, the Secret Service would do. And I will tell you, um, it, was, it was something to see. It's, there's a bunch of really, really smart people um, over there in, in the Secret Service Forensic Lab. And if I could tell you one, one funny story real quick, um, they're, they're all just super smart. And the one guy had been published, he had an article published and it was, you know, um, he had been published several times and I read his article and it was just very heavy stuff. It was, you know, if you weren't a clinician, you wouldn't understand it. And I was walking by him in the hall one day and I said, Hey man, I read your article. Congratulations on, uh, on getting published. Um, I was two, two sentences into it and I couldn't understand it anymore. And at this point I had already had, you know, one master's degree and on my way to a second one. And he looks at me very unabashedly and says, yeah, you'll never get it. And, <laughs> and what he meant was in, in his way was if you weren't a clinician, you're not going to understand it. Um, there was one, one of our forensic scientists there that who was teaching at George Washington university. And she wrote the book that she was teaching from. So just a bunch of really, really smart, dedicated people there that, uh, that did a lot of great work for us. Um, the, the biggest service, or the, I shouldn't say the biggest, but the service that we provided most often was uh, polygraph examinations. So I was, um, you know, under our division uh, where I was when I was the liaison to, to Nick Mick was also our polygraph examiners. And we would get them out um, to do polygraphs. In fact, my last year at Nick Mick, uh, Secret Service polygraph examiners did just under 450 polygraphs that year related to missing exploited child cases. So it was more than one time a day, a secret service polygraph examiner was out, was out finding the truth for a family or a victim. Given that this came out of the 94 omnibus crime bill, does that mean that this incredibly important partnership is ever in danger of being severed via legislation? Or is this something that folks can count on as being a dependable resource in the long term? I, I think, I guess technically it could, but I can't imagine any politician saying it was a good idea to take resources from Nick Mick. Okay. Um, and they, they do have a lot of lobbying power um, and they have some big, big fans who are, who are power. on the, on the board of Nick Mick, there's, there's senators and Congress people and champions of industry. So they, they have a very powerful lobbying a uh, lot of ability to lobby if they would need to, but I can't imagine anyone saying it would be a good idea. Now let's move on to missing adults. Can you explain for listeners when and how the federal government is activated when a missing person occurs? Well, this gets a little sticky because the the FBI will initiate a kidnapping investigation involving you know any child. So they'll, they'll jump onto it pretty quickly. Um, but what, what has to happen, you, and you'll see if you're in law enforcement long, you don't even have to be in it long to notice that it's a lot of um, territorialism. Um, so for a missing adult, um, it would take, you know, the FBI in some cases being asked by the local law enforcement 
by that local law enforcement who has jurisdiction over that missing person to say, hey, can, can you come in and help us? And I think you've seen that that has gotten a lot better. Um, the relationships overall, I think, between law enforcement have gotten a lot better. Uh, but there's also sometimes hesitation by local law enforcement agencies to say, you know, hey, we're in over our head. Everybody wants to solve their case. But, you know, they'll, there'll be times when it when when they quickly realize they're beyond their ability to investigate and they'll have the FBI come in. So it does get a little bit sticky when you're involving adults, but the FBI is automatically involved when it comes to uh, when it comes to cases with children. And if there was evidence, let's say in a cold case, a missing adult, young adult, missing persons case, if there was evidence that that person had been taken across state lines, if there's any evidence to that effect, could then the FBI step in without that invitation and say, this is now our purview and our jurisdiction and we are taking over? Yes. And I should have mentioned that. Yeah. Because then once you transport someone across state lines, then it becomes a federal crime. So yeah, at that point, uh, it would be. Um, and also if, it, if it's attached to any other federal crime, um, like if someone is kidnapped and and forced um, you know, against their will to rob a bank or participate in, a, in another federal, federal offense, uh, then at that point, the FBI could step in on something like that as well. More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. Listeners had a lot of questions, particularly involving the case, the, the missing persons case of Mara Murray, who has been missing now for almost 20 years, who went missing on a February night in the snow in New Hampshire, which was not the state in which she lived or was from. And especially given the Northeast, you know, the 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 conglomerate of states there that are sort of smaller, it's quite easy for someone to travel quickly out of state. And part of her family who has been publicly vocal about this, they have been hoping and asking for federal resources to become involved. And they said exactly what you did, which is that it's incumbent upon the local or state police to ask for that assistance, which hasn't been done yet and hasn't been done in 20 years. So that was partly why um, the line of questioning a lot of listeners were curious as to what else could occur to activate that federal intervention, especially outside of simply asking for it by that local law enforcement if there was a way to trigger it in a different manner. Yeah, and and, and that's a shame. Uh, you know, it, I think all of us have the mindset of, you know, we're going to get over ourselves and get over our egos. And, and that's one of the things that was beautiful about NECMEC was there was none of that. Um, everybody just wanted all these cases solved. And it didn't matter if it was a day old or 20 years old. And it didn't matter if it was a child or an adult. And so, yeah, for, for the ability of, of other agencies to come in and help out, uh, even just with manpower, as, you know, aside from the technology they could provide, even if it was just manpower, um, it's, it's always disappointing when that, when that opportunity is missed. Is there ever a reason or is there ever a situation where the FBI would decline to assist if there was a backlog, if they were stretched thin and, and someone, a department needed resources and they specifically were requesting, hey, we need help processing this DNA or this evidence, this crime scene, et cetera. Is there any reason that the FBI would decline or would do they always say yes and then it's just a matter of adding it in and dev folding it into their workload? Um, well, uh, you know, I, I don't want to speak out of turn not having been in the FBI, but the only time that I, and I didn't even see it, but the only time I heard of a situation where the FBI 
didn't act aggressively when they were asked to was it was a situation where the person had absconded like this person had left home dozen a dozen times on will, willfully and always come back and um when the family asked for help and the police department called for um called for help uh there was some hesitation to help until there was some indication that it was a true disappearance and not this person walking away again um but that was the only time other than that you know i i know the secret service you know we're supposed to have this uh this rivalry with the FBI, and I know you were at the hockey game a couple yeah. of weeks back, and, and you saw it firsthand. But boy, they're uh, you know they're they like every other federal agency are are dedicated to their mission, and they don't want failures either. So I don't, I can't, uh, like I said, I I've never seen a time, except from that one time of some hesitation where where they didn't intervene when they were asked to. Right, and which you know to their defense, of course, was with a justifiable reason and it only fostered hesitation. It wasn't a no, it was just a hesitation right. before deploying an right. incredible amount of resources. So that makes sense. Um, can you speak to then forensically going back to, for example, the secret service, what would be a challenge? One of the biggest challenges other than let's say degradation of evidence or the, the quality of a particular piece of evidence, other than that, is there a particular challenge that you deem as, as the most important, um, as, as you guys are processing evidence and doing your jobs in that way? Yeah, the biggest, the biggest hurdle I had to jump was people knowing we were there. Um, I, I got out as much as I could. I traveled all over the country and I talked to every police department. I would go down to the, um, the FBI National Academy every time they held classes. And I would, that way I'm in front of uh, representatives from about 250 police departments every session saying, hey, you know, let us know if you need this help. We're here and we're happy to do it. And, uh, and, and if I could talk about one case where we really had a, a great success was um, there was a young lady, her body was found right outside the gates of Fort Benning in Columbus, Georgia. And by the time she was discovered, um, it, this is gruesome, but her, her face and her hands had been eaten away by wildlife. So all that was really left was what was covered with her clothing. So she couldn't be identified. And uh, she sat in a morgue down there for 10 years. And I was able, I was out getting the word out about, hey, you know, this is something we can do. We can do handwriting analysis. We can do all this stuff. And and uh, so I get a call from the police department down there and they say, hey, we, we have this cold case. It, actually, I think it had been about 12 years uh, since they had found her. And they said, one of the things we have is she's wearing a pair of jeans. She was wearing a pair of jeans and there's handwriting on the jeans, but we can't make it out. Well, um, I said, ship everything up to me. So we got all her clothes sent up. Um, and uh, our one of our handwriting guys, Joe Stevens, who was another just genius there in the lab, he looked at the jeans under alternate light sources. And let me, let me say how humbling, humbling a moment it is when you lay out this evidence on a table and you realize that these were the clothes someone was wearing that when they met an untimely violent death. I mean, it was just, just a humbling moment. Um, but what Joe did was he looked at her jeans under alternate light sources and was able to pull out the writing that was on her jeans. And what ended up being written there was um, the initials of a gang that was running uh, between California and uh, the Dallas area. So the police department took that lead 
uh, they went and asked some questions. And what they found out was that there was a young lady who these two brothers in the gang were were trafficking. Uh, she was 20 years old. And um, th they found out her name. They were able to positively identify her when they got DNA from her mother. Uh, one of the brothers had been missing for years uh, and he's presumed dead, but the other one was already in prison and they were able to convict him for this murder. And uh, and they were able to give this this mother back her daughter after 12 years of her being missing, uh, just because Joe was able to pull out that that writing that was on her genes. And um, and, you know, when you had you had one of your guests on the podcast not too long ago and I commented that, you know, being able to give the family back their loved ones so they can give them a proper burial. Um, you know, sometimes it's hollow when that's all you can do, but allowing someone to rest in peace is, is a big deal. Um, so the fact that, you know, we were a little small part of, of getting this woman back to her mother so she could give her a proper burial. Um, you know, that was something we took a lot of, a lot of pride in. As you should. That's an incredible story. The, the underlying point of that too, and so many of these cold cases that are solved are really that dogged determination on the part yeah. of law enforcement, the, the ones who do not give up. Can you talk to us about that, that partnership between, you know, you mentioned earlier that there's a territorialness that can come into play and ego that can come into play, but there's an incredible partnership most of the time. Do you have an example of that? Yeah, we, we never, uh, you know, when you're working a missing persons case, there's never such a thing as a closed case. They can be deemed cold, but they will never be closed. And one of the things we're seeing, look, I, I could tell you about the cases of like Jacob Weatherling, who um, I got to know his mother when I was at um, Nick Mick, who disappeared in 1989. And he was he was discovered and, and his true killer was found after 27 years. Um or, you know, people like uh, Morgan Nick, who's been, you know, there's actually a Hulu show um, right now about still missing Morgan, who disappeared in 1995. And, and her mother's a great advocate for, for uh, Nick Mick and for missing children. You know, those, th those are, are, are heartbreaking, heartbreaking times. Um, but the other thing we're seeing, and the, and the reason I keep telling parents when I talk about this, is about never giving up hope, is what we've seen along with these heartbreaking times where children are either never recovered or and we're still looking or they're recovered, but they're deceased. We've had these long-term missing cases, most notably, and I know it was a while ago, but uh, Elizabeth Smart, mm -hmm. who was gone for months. And then you had the three girls in, in um, Cleveland who were gone for over a decade. And, and we've seen this, we've seen this happening over and over where we're, people are getting recovered and discovered um, sometimes uh, sometimes by their own, by their own hand, they figured it out. Um, you know, we had a young lady and, and I feel, feel bad that I, I um, her name escapes me, but she did her own research. When it came time for her to go to college, her mother couldn't find, kept stalling her. She couldn't find her birth certificate and she couldn't find these other records, school records for, or um, not school records, uh, hospital records for. And, she did her own research and finally went to the police and said, Hey, I'm not, I don't think I'm who they say I am. And it was found out that she was kidnapped from the hospital when she was two days old. And this woman raised her as her own. Um, and she solved her own case. So, 
when, um, you know, when you see things like that, it is a, a true reason to keep hope that there are a lot of there. There's been a lot of people over the last decade who've been missing for a long time, who've been discovered uh, alive and well. The stories are always so amazing to hear. Can you explain for listeners about VICAP, which is the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, and that's a federal program, but it involves local law enforcement and that collection and logging and then communication of evidence. Can you explain a little bit more about that for listeners? It's, you know, I'm kind of speaking out of turn. It's not not something I dealt a lot with, um, but it's, it's kind of a, uh, you know, again, it's somewhat of a clearinghouse where... Um, there's uh, Jane Doe's uh, or John Doe's put into it. And, you know, the, the general public can go in there and, and look for, you know, evidence of, uh, of people they see. Um, they, let me step back. They do, they'll put in like the age progressed photos and things like that, uh, that people can view. So if you see someone that maybe they come to a police department and say, hey, you know, I was kidnapped 10, 10 years ago. Uh, that police department can go into VICAP and view the uh, view the data to get some factual basis for this person's claim. Um, and there's also databases where they'll put in, uh, like NamUs, where they put in uh, DNA profiles uh, from family members of missing people. So if either um, remains are recovered or someone is recovered alive, they can quickly do a DNA comparison. So this is really uh, all of these resources, VICAP, NamUs, things like that, have really grown um, to assist all levels of law enforcement, but especially local law enforcement, because what VICAP does is it lets law enforcement collect and enter and analyze their own violent crime information right on their local level. And it facilitates that identification of like similar cases in the region on both a state and a national basis. So they can look for patterns. You know, Criminal analysis used to be pins in a map, right? Yeah. Um, you know, we'd, we'd really do that, but now everything is electronic and everything is instantly available. And it is, um, it is a huge, huge aid to all of law enforcement everywhere. And it's, you know, it's free. You know, these, these agencies that, um, you know, the FBI runs VICAP and, and they leave it there for, for everyone to, to either contribute to or collect from. So it's a great resource. Speaking of great resources, is there any final piece of information from your time at NCMEC that you'd like to leave our listeners with? People have heard me say I heard and saw things there that I will never repeat because I don't want those things to live in someone else's mind the way they live in mine. Um, but the one thing that is there is a constant attitude of, of hope and pushing forward in, in solving cases. And I will tell you that if you are a parent, uh, be glad NCMEC is there as a resource to law enforcement. And, uh, and in being a parent, you know, be responsible. I tell parents all the time, I, I'll never judge you as a parent because I'm not the best. But if you don't know what your kids are doing online and with their phones, I'll, I'll judge you a little bit because of that, because that's how bad guys are getting to kids now. So, um, you know, please make sure you're monitoring what your kids do online. You know, make sure you know who they're talking to because uh, bad guys pretend to be young kids all the time. And um, and. The internet is, there's really no need for a bad guy to say, hey, little girl, do you want some candy anymore? Because they can just get to them through game chat or chat rooms or Instagram. Um, 
So you re you really need to protect your kids and keep an eye on them and, and just be diligent and vigilant about what your children are doing. Perfectly said, perfectly warned. And Jeff, I value you so much. Um, why don't you share with our listeners what you're doing now, by the way, your security company? I'm the uh, chief of police at Robert Morris University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, I also have uh, a, a company I have on the side. It's Capital Security Consultants. Um, we do a couple things through that. We do a lot of uh, active assailant survival training, which we title uh, Beyond Run, Hide, Fight. Um, we also do some some self-defense, and we're also certified to do risk and vulnerability assessments for schools, uh, K through 12, higher education, uh, places of worship. So if you want to check us out, we're on the web at capital C-A-P-I-T-O-L-security.com. And if you think there's a way we can help your organization or your school or your community group, uh, please let us know. Jeff James, thank you so much as always. You're such an incredible resource for us. I can't wait to have the episode with you dedicated to the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan as you were Hinckley's case manager. That story is incredible. The truth is stranger than fiction. To hear more stories like this, you can listen to our past episodes on the Fox True Crime Podcast. Go to foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts to listen and subscribe. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.